Hey, guests, uh, so glad that you're here. Thanks for joining us here at Centennial Church this morning. So glad that you're here. Church family, great to see you as well. Just uh, a little bit of family business. My name is Ross. Uh, just want to update you a little bit on family things. Uh, a lot of needs, as Bob prayed, in our, uh, in our church family right now. I see uh, Ken and Libby back with us this morning. Uh, Libby lost her mother a couple weeks ago, and they uh, had the service last week. Um, so uh, we've been praying for you guys, and good to see you again. Uh, Libby's mom, special person to me because she held my little ones back in the nursery uh, for a while, and I got to spend a little time with her special dear lady, and uh, it's not... Not many times in a church family that you have four generations uh, represented here. So with uh, Ken and Libby's son and their little ones, and then uh, Miss Jean, who uh, is with Jesus this morning. Um, and this is, does seem like they, we are in a season as a church, particularly uh, those with uh, older, ailing parents. I, I wrote down quickly this morning, just uh, by prayer request here, um, Jill Hessen, Jim is back here with us this morning, but Jill is with her father who is now on hospice, and, and Jim says things don't look good. Jim himself um, recovering from a, another eye surgery, so uh, he's lucky he could drive himself here this morning, but uh, pray, for the, pray for the Hessens. <clears throat> Did you drive yourself here? What was that? I said, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so stand on his right side if you want to be seen by him, okay, his left um, but not only the Hessens as, as well as the Cox family, but also uh, Virginia Carter. Chuck and Virginia are usually, I don't see them this morning, they're usually right over here, but uh, Virginia's father, also in hospice this, this uh, week, visited with them. Uh, many of you know Scott Holtz, our elder chairman, Scott's dad uh, on hospice. Also Lori Andrews, uh, father up in Utah, um, not, not doing well. So, um, you can see a uh, common common theme here. Also, Bruce Jackson, Bruce and Cindy, or Susan, excuse me, usually sit back here. Bruce is recovering uh, from a heart ablation last week, so he's going to be down for a couple weeks. So lots of things uh, happening in our church body, and also just want to say a special request. Also, many of you know that Rebecca, our children's minister, who was up here earlier in the service uh, giving our announcements, Rebecca is going in for her first surgery tomorrow. So uh, there's opportunities to take meals to the Merritt family as they go through a series of surgeries for Rebecca. The, uh, the sign-up for that is on our website. If you want to uh, take a meal uh, to the Merritts, you can go to centennialchurch.com slash food for fab, okay? Food for fab uh, if you want to sign up to uh, take them a meal, so that will happen tomorrow. So lots of needs um, in our church family. I just want to make you aware of those. Please be the body of Christ and be the church family uh, to one another um, in these tough times. Amen? Would you bow and uh, pray with me, and uh, we'll pray for those needs as well as our time in God's Word this morning. Father God, we uh, again just come to you and just express our uh, deep need for you. Uh, in our own lives, in the lives of our family, we pray for those this morning uh, who are ailing, those uh, who are days or weeks or months away from being with you. We pray for their family's comfort. Um, Lord, we pray for Rebecca as she goes in for surgery tomorrow, and we pray for Roy and the kids that you would comfort them. And Lord, we just ask for great skill for the doctors and a quick and, and healthy recovery for Rebecca. And we just thank you for 
for her and for her family and all that they um, mean to us. We lift up the Hessons, we lift up the Carters and the Holtz and the Andrews and the Jacksons and, and the Cox family and all these many needs among us, God, um, and others that uh, are in our own hearts or others known only to, uh, to us and you. We pray, God, that you would meet us, give us strength, give us grace. Uh, and refocus our hearts, refocus our minds this morning upon you. As we look into your word this morning, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would lead and guide us and that you would encourage us where we need encouragement and challenge us where we need challenge. Um, yeah, we just um, look in our own lives and we look in our world and we just know how desperate we are for you. And so we plead your grace upon our lives. We pre- plead your grace upon our country uh, upon our world, and we do pray that uh, we would be your missionaries, that we would be your light in this dark world. It's in the beautiful name of Jesus we pray, amen. We'll go ahead and open your Bibles with me to the book of Daniel, where we will jump in in a few minutes. A few weeks ago, I told you a story about my first ever uh, research paper in college, and uh, some of you will remember that my first biology research paper as a freshman at OSU was the effects of dams on salmon, and uh, yeah, it's fascinating, fascinating, and uh, if you want to read that paper, I'm sorry, I've lost it, but you can go to the Library of Congress, and you can check that out and be amazed at the insightful um, scientific groundbreaking study that I did there. Some of you don't know that I'm kidding. Um, I have uh, what in my house we call the non-spiritual gift of sarcasm, okay? That was, that was sarcasm. Uh, but I, I did this research, and it was really intimidating, but as I thought about that, and I thought about research today, and this will be a bit of a uh, history lesson for some of the students over here in this section, but back in the day, Back in the good old days, if you wanted to research something, you wanted to find out some information, uh, you went to this place that back in the day we called a library. Yeah, it was a library, and it housed just thousands and thousands of books. It had not yet been overtaken by computers. But if you wanted to research something, even in grade school, you would go to the school library. And uh, for me and for many uh, of the parents among us and those of uh, previous generations, probably for you, you went, as I did, to the first place in the reference uh, section would be to the encyclopedia, okay? And some, again, students over in this section or over here do not even know what an encyclopedia is, okay? But it's a large volume of books, and if you wanted to research salmon, you would grab that S volume and you would start there. Those days are over, right? The days of encyclopedias. They're, they had this other ancient uh, mechanism in my school library, and that was this big, huge box with all these drawers in it, and it was called a card catalog. Yeah, everybody remember a card catalog? You pull that thing out, it came out about two and a half feet, and you search through all these cards for different topics that you were looking for to find information. Well, times change, and information gathering has certainly changed, and most of us haven't looked at an encyclopedia in forever, and most of us don't even know what a card catalog is anymore, but we still need information, but information gathering has changed. So today we have what? The internet. I mean, we have Google. We have WebMD, right? I mean, how many doctors uh, do you go to, and they are so frustrated by WebMD, 
because everybody comes in thinking they are a doctor too because they went and they searched WebMD, right? So you, you have the internet, you have WebMD, not only do you have those things, but you have this gal that lives in your phone, right? Siri, she, uh, the, there's a reason we call it a smartphone, she is smart, right? Um, not only Siri, Wikipedia, YouTube, many of you know, a home project, uh, do-it-yourself project. What do you do? Go to YouTube and just type it in. I mean, how do I build this cabinet? How do I do this crown molding? And YouTube has the answers, right? Uh, we are still in search of information, but the way that we get our information has drastically changed. But the information that we need is right today, right at our fingertips. All we can do, all we have to do is pull the phone out of our pocket and type in what it is that we want to know. Information right at our fingertips. A couple weeks ago, I read this, and it was powerful to me. I read this quote. It says, we are drowning in information while starving for wisdom. We are drowning in information while starving for wisdom. Information is all around us. Information is available to us 24-7. We don't have to walk to the library. We don't even have to open up a book. It's just instantaneous and abundant. Information overload, but wisdom poor. This morning, we are talking as we continue this series, looking at the life of Daniel called Thriving in Babylon. We are looking at one of the key ingredients that Daniel illustrates, and one of the key ingredients we need if we're going to thrive in Babylon is that not just information, information is abundant, but wisdom. Wisdom to sort through the information and wisdom to navigate these times, wisdom to navigate the life in Babylon that we're in and the life in Babylon that we will face. We need wisdom, not just information. So this morning, uh, our three headings, our three points as we look at this topic of wisdom will be wisdom described, wisdom illustrated, and then wisdom attained, okay? So beginning just with a description of wisdom, what really is wisdom? How would you define wisdom? And it's, it's different than information, Wisdom is distinguished from information as that, as that uh, wisdom uh, is not just knowledge, but wisdom is the application of knowledge. Some have said that wisdom is skillful living. I like that definition. Skillful wisdom. If uh, knowledge is about facts and data, wisdom is about applying those facts and data and, and through knowledge and experience, applying what it is that you know. It's uh, often, uh, wisdom is often contrasted in the Bible with foolishness. You can be wise or you can be foolish. And because wisdom has this, often this contrast with foolishness, wisdom has kind of a moral component to it. Uh, data or information or knowledge is basically somewhat neutral in its morality, but wisdom has a morality to it. Um, if you're wise, you're not foolish. If you're wise, you make good decisions. Um, you can be, according to the scriptures, you can be incredibly smart, but incredibly stupid. We all know incredibly brilliant people 
can do incredibly stupid things, right? Knowledge does not equate to wisdom. While intelligence uh, centers on cognitive information and asks the question, what do I need to know? Wisdom centers on application. What do I need to do? Wisdom is the skill of navigating the complexities of life, uh, especially in relationships and especially where things are gray. There's not a black and white way to do things. You need wisdom. Uh, Knowledge excels. You could say it like this. Knowledge excels in multiple choice and fill in the blank kind of tests, but wisdom excels in short answer questions. I mean, you can take a test and it's multiple choice or fill in the blank and you can kind of use the powers of deduction and reasoning and figure out the right answer. But wisdom is being able to apply what you know to that short answer question, to, to put it to work, right? Wisdom. As I uh, said before, most of us have on our phones this little gal that talks to us frequently, And as I've been in my car driving to various places, my seven-year-old and my five-year-old often ask me, Daddy, how does she know that? How does she know where to go? And I say, well, she's a smartphone. She's smart. She knows where to go. But notice we don't call our smartphones wise phones, do we? Because she's smart. She has some information, although she's led me on some goose chases, right? Uh, She's not perfect, she's not uh, inerrant, but uh, she can give me information, but Siri cannot give me wisdom, right? She can be able to tell me how to get somewhere, she can tell me perhaps how much traffic there will be uh, as I head that way, but she cannot tell me if my trip will be worth it or if I should take someone on that trip with me, she can't do that. Siri can tell me where all the schools are located in my vicinity, around my neighborhood. She can tell me all the schools in the vicinity, but she can't tell me which school would be the best for my children. Siri can't tell me public school, private school, homeschool. She's got knowledge, but she doesn't have wisdom. She can connect you to a dating website, Siri can, but she cannot tell you who would be best for you to marry. She can tell you what doctors are in your network, but she can't tell you what facility will be best for your aging parent. There's information, there's knowledge, and then there's wisdom. And what we all desperately need, particularly in Babylon, is wisdom. Skillful living. In one sense, wisdom is a gift of God. If you look in Daniel chapter 2, verse 23, after Daniel interprets this dream, he not only interprets the dream for Nebuchadnezzar, but he tells Nebuchadnezzar what the dream is, and then he interprets the dream, and he says in verse 23 of chapter 2, he says, this wisdom is not of my power. This wisdom that I have comes from God. So in another sense, wisdom is a gift of God. Wisdom is an attribute of God, and wisdom is a gift of God. Knowledge and facts may help you win Jeopardy. Knowledge and facts may help you win a game of trivia pursuit. But if you want to excel in the game of life, what you need is wisdom. Wisdom. And we see this wisdom illustrated in the life of Daniel. Uh, Daniel is described as a wise person. In fact, uh, in Ezekiel, 
the prophet Ezekiel compares others to others' wisdom to Daniel's wisdom. Daniel becomes like the standard of wisdom. In uh, chapter 5, go ahead and ch- uh, flip with me into Daniel chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. Uh, this is not Nebuchadnezzar, but this is Nebuchadnezzar's son, who is now the king, Belshazzar. And Daniel is uh, not only uh, served uh, Nebuchadnezzar, but now he's serving for his son. And his son, Belshazzar, finds out about Daniel's incredible wisdom. Chapter 5, verse 11, and I'll read on down through verse uh, 14, says this. Uh, actually, let me start at verse 10. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, that was Nebuchadnezzar, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation." Verse 13, then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard, I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Daniel had built this reputation for his wisdom. His wisdom in matters that the king wanted to know about, his uh, supernatural ability to uh, interpret dreams. He had become known as a man of wisdom. In chapter 1, at the end of verse chapter 1, it says that that Daniel's wisdom and Daniel's discernment were ten times that of the other wise men of the kingdom. Daniel was wise. You think about uh, all the things, if, if, if wisdom is applying truth, if wisdom is applying knowledge, you think about all the things that Daniel had to navigate in his life as he lived in Babylon. Think of all the things that happened to him. First of all, he was moved, and moved is a nice way to say, about, to say it. He was exiled. He was taken captive and moved to this pagan capital of Babylon. Uh, he, as he was there, he took on, he was given this pagan name, Belteshazzar, which really was a tribute to the, Babylon, the Babylonian gods. So he was moved to this pagan place. He took this Babylonian name. He served this pagan employer, this pagan king. But in his service, he resolved. He said, I'm not going to eat this food. I'm not going to disobey my God in this. So he resolved himself, uh, chapter 1, verse 8, not to eat the king's food. But as he served in the king's court, he outperformed all the other wise men, as I said just a second ago. He was heads above the others in his class. He became known as Daniel, a wise one. Daniel, a wise man. He outperformed the others, but he also drew the line in the sand He said, I can do some of these things, but I will not, chapter 5, I will not bow down and worship a statue. I will not worship a foreign god. He let himself be called a pagan name. He served 
a pagan king, but he said, but I'm not going to cross this line. I will not bow to a pagan god. And you see also in chapter 5 that he went back in a time of crisis and he continued to pray three times a day with his windows open. It says, as had been his custom. He continued in a foreign pagan land to continue to worship the one true God that he knew. And we see the wisdom of Daniel here in that he navigated the complexities of life. He compromised, if you will. He gave in. He worked for a pagan ruler. Now, many of us, if we, if, if, if we or if one of our neighbors or a friend or a church member worked for a pagan king, perhaps, they would, we would not tolerate that. We would say, you're selling out. You're working for the man. Daniel was working for the man, but he maintained his integrity and his testimony as a worshiper of the one true God. He compromised. He navigated the complexities of where he lived and the time in which he lived. Daniel said, you can call me what you want. You can teach me what you want. He actually had three years of schooling in in Babylonian religion. He learned about astrology. He learned about witchcraft. He learned about magic. And and most of us would be uncomfortable with that. We'd be like, am I going to go to some pagan secular school or going to learn about some false religion for three years? We wouldn't have it. And we certainly wouldn't have it for our kids, would we? But the scriptures tell us that Daniel, this wise man, he sat for three years under the teachings and the religion of pagans and maintained his integrity, maintained his faith. He said, call me what you want, teach me what you want, and you can do as you please. But as for me, I'm going to continue to pray to my God I'm going to continue to honor God by being obedient to him where he has clearly showed me what obedience means. But I'm going to serve here as best I can. He navigated the complexities of life. He compromised, but he never compromised to a fault. Uh, Larry Osborne has called wisdom the power of perspective. Wisdom is the power of perspective. It's, it's looking at things not just with binoculars, but it's looking at things from a wider perspective, from a wide-angle lens. It's looking, things for, looking at things not just in the moment, but from a higher perspective, from an eternal perspective. It's looking at things not just from a natural lens, but from a supernatural lens. Not just what the world says, but what God says. It's looking at things from a different perspective. And a lot of wisdom is about perspective. Osborne writes this. One of the telling marks of immaturity is a lack of perspective. Waiting is not an option. Compromise is a dirty word. Everything is equally important. There are no nuances. Everything is black and white, and the immediate consequences are the only consequences that matter. Perspective. Let me read that again. One of the telling marks of immaturity is a lack of perspective. Waiting is not an option. Compromise is a dirty word. Everything is equally important. There are no nuances. But you see that Daniel made compromises. He didn't see everything as a hill to die on. And he didn't draw a line in the sand about every moral issue. But he navigated the complexities of life. 
uh, without perspective, everything gets blown out of, pers- out of proportion, doesn't it? An easy way to think about this, an easy example of this is, is why is it that my uh, seven-year-old or my five-year-old think that waiting for five minutes is like waiting for an eternity? Why do kids think that way? It's a matter of perspective. Five minutes to a toddler is an eternity, but from the perspective of, of an adult, it's five minutes. Why does a uh, trust fund baby think that flying coach on an airline is just the end of the world because of a lack of perspective? Why does the parent of a kid playing baseball just go nuts and go off at the umpire and, and uh, start a yelling match with the other team's coach? Why does a, a parent of a Little League baseball player get so hot in a situation like that? A loss of perspective. The five-year-old doesn't understand uh, waiting five minutes. The trust fund baby doesn't understand how everyone else lives. And the angry parent doesn't understand that that call, that that game, weeks from now will not matter. Hours from now will not matter. It's a lack of perspective. And Daniel had this perspective of wisdom that said, I've got to give a little here, but I can't give up here. I've got to draw a line in the sand about this. I will not worship. I will not bow down to that statue. But hey, I'll learn your religion. I'll take your pagan name. It's perspective. It's the perspective of wisdom. See, uh, we believe right, that we base our lives as believers, we believe that we base our lives upon the word of God, right? Everybody, if you're here this morning, if you're, if you're a believer in Jesus, one of the foundational beliefs that we have is the authority and the trustworthiness, the inerrancy of this book. We, we, we base our lives on the trustworthiness of this book. Is it not trustworthy? It is, Right? Just a couple verses to point that out. 2 Timothy 3.16. What does 2 Timothy 3.16 tell us? All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So, question. How much of scripture is God breathed? All of it. And what is it profitable for? Four things according to this verse. For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Scripture is is here to guide us, right? To teach us, to rebuke us, to get us on the right path, to train us for godliness. Scripture is our authority and Scripture is our source, right? Another passage, 2 Peter, this one is lesser known, but 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 3. Look at the promise here of Peter. His divine power, God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Now, let me ask you another quiz question. True or false? Has God granted to us all things that we need for life and godliness? True or false? God has granted to us all things that we need for life and godliness. True or false? True. God has given us everything we need in the scriptures. God has given us everything we need to follow him, to live a life of godliness. We have it all. He's given us everything. It's completely adequate. 
But here's the kicker. The scriptures, completely adequate, completely sufficient, giving us everything we need for life and godliness. Get this, here's the kicker. They don't answer every question that we face in this life. The scriptures are totally sufficient, and yet they do not answer every question that happens to us in life. Therefore, what we need is wisdom to apply the Bible to the scenarios that the Bible doesn't talk about, right? The Bible is totally sufficient to guide us in this life, but the the Bible doesn't give us answers to every question of life. Therefore, we need wisdom. Wisdom to apply what God has said. Wisdom to navigate where God hasn't spoken. Are you following me? Because here's what happens in Babylon. Here's what happens in the good old U.S. of A. When you live in Babylon, there's two pulls on us, okay? One pull as we live and and we move into Babylon, one pull is the pull towards relativism. The pull that says just ignore God's word. It's not all sufficient. It's not without error. It's just kind of man's interpretation. That's, That's called disregarding God's word or relativism or ignoring God's word, okay? That's one of the pulls of Babylon. But there's another pull in Babylon, and that's the pull of legalism, where not only do we believe that this is God's word, but we, we believe that there's other things that you ought to apply to God's, to God's word. In other words, we make other laws and other rules, right? So it's interesting to know, many, almost all of us will have heard about the Pharisees, right? These are the people that Jesus had such battles with in his ministry, right? Well, the Pharisees developed during the time and just during and after the exile. And why did the, why did the Pharisees develop as this, as this uh, party, as this religious sect in Israel? Well, they did that. They developed as this, as, this, as this extra party in Israel because of their allegiance to God's word. They said, we're being punished. We're in exile because we've disobeyed God's word. So what do we need to do? We need to obey God's word. We need to obey God. And so the Pharisees, in in a good intention of their heart, they didn't want to be over here. They didn't want to ignore God's word. They didn't want to be disciplined for ignoring God's word or be fools by not obeying God's word. They said, we want to obey God's word, but there's some places where God's word isn't really clear. Like, what does it mean to not work on the Sabbath? So what did the Pharisees do? They said, well, let's just define that a little better, okay? So what they did is collected all these human traditions, all these man-made rules, and said, you know what? To work on the Sabbath, that means that you can pull your mule out of the ditch, okay? It's okay to help your mule or your donkey out of the ditch, but you can't heal someone. You can't give them medical attention on the Sabbath because that would be acting like a doctor and that would be work, okay? So they made all these rules and they interpreted what it meant to keep the Sabbath holy by adding on man-made rules. That's the temptation in Babylon. Twofold. To either ignore God's word, and this is what Babylon says, God, God's word is, is, a, is a bunch of crock. 
You can't trust that. It's just man's opinion. Do away with the scriptures. Probably most of us in this room are not tempted toward that view. But you know what we are tempted towards this morning? The same temptation that the Pharisees had. And that is where the Bible is not clear to add a rule, to add a tradition, right? What was Daniel supposed to do? Was he supposed to take a Babylonian pagan name? Well, God hadn't told him. God had no rule in the Old Testament that said, thou shall not take a pagan name. So what did Daniel do? He did his best. Now, God was very clear, don't intermarry with people of other faiths. So Daniel didn't do that. But did God say anything about going to seminary at the pagan seminary of Babylon? No. So Daniel, in his wisdom, said, I can do this, but I can't do that. I can change my name. I can go to your school. I can graduate and graduate at the top of my class. But there's other things that I clearly cannot do. But to navigate those decisions takes wisdom. See, we need the word of God. We need the authority of God's word. But we also need wisdom from God to navigate how that word applies, right? Lest we be relativists and disregard God's word or become legalists and add to God's word. And either, both, are foolish, right? It's foolish to disregard God's word, but it's likewise, it's foolish to add to God's word. But we're so tempted to do this, aren't we? So tempted to do this, especially in Babylon. So the question comes, as questions have arised in years past. Well, if we're supposed to be modest, if we're supposed to be pure, then that must mean when we go to summer camp, we shouldn't have mixed bathing. We better have the boys swim in one pool and the girls swim in another pool. What's happened? Now, we laugh at this today, but this is what happened a generation ago. You take a principle and you make a rule about it. To be modest, to be pure means boys and girls don't swim together right? We do it in other areas as well, right? If we're supposed to live lives of light, if we're supposed to be pure, if we're supposed to, if our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, then surely we shouldn't dance, right? Many of us grew up with this. Hey, to be a good, pure Christian means you have to follow this rule. You can't dance, any dance. And the Bible says, don't get drunk with wine, right? So that must mean to never touch a drop of it. That must mean that anyone that ever drinks is out, alcohol is outside of God's law, right? You see what we do? We take a principle of God's word and we add human tradition to it and we make new laws. And it's foolish. But our temptation in Babylon will, to be, will be to do just that. Hey, man, we live in a pagan culture, so guess what? Here's how you raise your kids, right here. Here's how you do your, their schooling. Here's what you allow them to watch. Here's who you allow them to play with. Here's, here's, here's when they can practice their sports and when they can't. And we, we begin to take those human man-made rules and not only apply them to ourselves, but apply them to our friends and our neighbors and our Christian brothers and sisters. And that is not 
living by God's word that is adding to God's word. Are you following me? To live in Babylon, we have to have wisdom. We have to have wisdom to navigate the complexities that life will bring us. We can't just flip through the Bible and say, where does it address movies? Where does it tell me where to send my, my kids to school? It doesn't. It's totally sufficient. And yet God has instructed us to seek wisdom to apply what the word says. Amen? Amen. How do you get wisdom? How do you find wisdom? Let's, let's just... Uh, Let's open it up here. How do, we, how do we cultivate wisdom? Where do you get it? The word of God? Excellent. What? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? Where, how, how do you find wisdom? If that's a definition of it, how, how do you gain it? How do you cultivate it? By making mistakes. That is, that is more true than we would like to admit, isn't it? Let me, let me, you might want to jot this down. Okay, I've got to wrap up here. Jot down James chapter 1. James chapter 1. One, one way that we get wisdom is through trials. You know, Most, Many of us will say, God, God, give me wisdom. But guess what? We've got to be careful when we pray that because you know how God's going to give us that wisdom? Through trials and through error. And so a lot of times cultivating wisdom is cultivating character through trials, through experience, through making mistakes. Information can be, get, can be had instantly. Wisdom, most of the time, happens through experience and with time, which is why the, the younger among us need to hang out and rub shoulders with people that have been further down the road than we have. But experience alone does not necessarily make you wise, right? Many of us can go through trials and, and we can remain as, as foolish and as stupid after the trial as we were before, right? So it's evaluated experience. It's filtered experience that helps us grow wise. There's another promise that the Bible says of how we gain wisdom. I'm thinking about Proverbs 13, 20. Proverbs 13, 20 says this, "'Whoever walks with the wise will grow wise.'" but the companion of fools suffers harm. Another way that we grow in wisdom is by walking through life with wise people. And man, he, he is wise. She is wise. I'm going to pull up a chair next to them and learn of them. Wisdom comes through experience. Wisdom comes through wise people. Wisdom also comes as a gift of God. Sometimes God does grant us wisdom right in the moment. If you go on and read chapter 1 of James, in verse 5 of James, James 1, 5, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask of God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. Do you hear the promise of verse 5? If any of you lacks wisdom, raise your hand if that applies to you. If any of you lacks wisdom, ask of God, and he will give generously to you without finding fault. That has been such a comfort to me in these last days. Man, if I, where I need wisdom, I need to ask God. How is God going to give me that wisdom? How's God going to bring me? How's he going to deliver that wisdom to me? Is he going to shoot me an email and give me the answer? Is he going to drop it from the clouds or, or I have a dream at night as I'm sleeping? How's he going to deliver that wisdom? 
It could be as I read. It could be as I talk to a wise friend and get counsel. It could be just an impression or a, just a sense that I get in my spirit that this is the wisdom of God that he is giving to me in answer to my prayer, right? We don't know how he gives it, but James 1 says, if you need wisdom, ask, and he will give to you generously. We are drowning in information, but starving for wisdom. Let's be people of wisdom. Seek it, apply it, share it. Will you bow your heads with me? I want to give you 30 seconds right now, wherever you are, to just bow your head and just seek the Lord and say, Lord, I need some wisdom in this. Lord, please give me wisdom in whatever situation it is. Just go before the Lord right now and ask for wisdom. Father God, we come to you this morning and... um, Father, I just, I confess my foolishness. I confess my stupidity and my incredible need for your truth, for your wisdom, for wise friends. God, we thank you that you are the only wise God. And we thank you that you have said that if we ask for your wisdom, you will be faithful to give it to us. So, Father, in very confusing and very troublesome and very fearful times, we ask that we would not be fearful, that we would not worry, but we would be people of wisdom, that we would be people of light in a dark world, and that you would help us to navigate these difficult situations, these difficult days. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.